Uh, our Sunday school class is here, some about the rapture and uh, the tribulation period. After that, we're going to continue to study some more of that as we go through the book of Thessalonians. But there were some thoughts that came to my mind as I was looking at this, and um, actually about a week ago, and uh, so when Pastor called me today and uh, asked me if I would uh, set up a lesson, uh, this thought came to my mind. I want to talk with you tonight about the tribulation period a little bit. Um, you know, the one of the worst things that's ever going to happen to this world starts out with probably the second best day of our lives. The first day was the day we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we don't get that right, then it isn't, it isn't going to be the second best day of our life. Uh, but if we've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, when this rapture happens, and if we're still alive, which I think God gives us all the hope of the rapture until we need the grace to face death, but with the things going on in this world and stuff like that, I think there's a, there's a reasonable chance... I know when I first got saved back in 76, preachers, a lot of them didn't think we'd see the millennial end, that they thought the Lord would come back uh, before the year 2000. And uh, The Lord's long-suffering, and he's patient, but he does have a date. We don't know what that date is, but he does. And uh, we can. our pastor has talked many a times about the fact that Almost all prophecy has to do with during the tribulation or right after the tribulation period in the millennial reign. There's almost zero prophecy that has to do leading up to the rapture. But he used the analogy of that we can see these mountain peaks of prophecy that happened during the tribulation and almost like if the sun's on the backside of these mountains casting a shadow over into our time and that we can see things that would uh, be unheard of you know not so many generations ago like uh, when the per- when the two prophets get killed uh, in Jerusalem and the Bible talks about that the whole world sees it and rejoices it. well you go back before television and stuff like that and they weren't going to be able to see that so just uh, you know you take the last 50 60 years and a lot of things have come into play the mark of the beast, I think, could just easily be one of those little chips that they put now in the backs of your dogs and stuff so that you can put your, you know, their identification and stuff like that. Um, some places are talking uh, you know, that you could put a little kernel, it's the size of a kernel of rice, that little chip, and you could have all your financial data in that. And the scanner, would, to read those things, only costs $200. I mean, for every grocery store in the United States, every store everywhere to retrofit that you no longer swipe a card, you no longer use money, but you just put your hand under a counter and, uh, and they debit your account. And so we, you know, the things like the mark of the beast and how is he going to control all that and stuff, the technology is there and it's low cost. I mean, there's so many things that... Uh, are going to happen during the tribulation period, but the stage is set, the technology is in place. There is nothing that hinders the good Lord from coming back today. The The last thing, the only thing that really talks about as far as a prophetic thing that had to happen before God, Jesus could come back 
is that Israel had to become a nation again. And Israel became a nation in 1948. So from that moment on, there's nothing prophetically that we know of that would stop Jesus Christ from coming back this very moment. And, uh, and I wish he would. Uh, you know, so what's going to start is one of the, like I said, the worst things, the most terrible things that's ever happened to the world is going to start out being the second greatest day in our lives if we're saved because we're going to be taken out of here. As it tells us in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me, and looking at verse 13, again, something that we uh, looked at not long ago in Sunday school, but he said, Paul writing, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And that's such an important truth right there. God's word is so clear. They're, yes, they're Christians, and yes, they've died, but he got, the word sleep proves to us that they're not like dead. They're not ceasing to exist. Once you're born, you'll always exist. And after this life is over, you're going to exist in one of two places, and it's either heaven or hell. And you'll make a decision about Jesus Christ, and that decision will set your destiny. But, and then he sits there and he says, and when God, when Jesus comes back, he says, God will bring, uh, he says, and Jesus will God bring with him. In other words, those same people that are asleep are going to come back to get their glorified body. So we know they're not just sleeping in the grave. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the moment you die as a Christian, you open your eyes in glory. One day we're going to come back if you, if a person dies in the Lord, they're going to come back and be given that glorified body. Uh, for us that are alive, we're going to be changed, the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. It goes on in our text and says uh, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We've got a glorious future waiting on us. And the thing is, again, what ushers in the the terrible time on the face of the earth for the lost is the second most glorious day possible for us. Because we get to... Um, you know, you think about this, not only do we get to leave all of our problems behind, which I think probably for most of us, that is a first thought where we, we still have our, our body, we have our aches, we have our pains, we have our financial obligations, we have, uh, other crises that are going on and the fact that all that's over. It just can't help but that be part, maybe the very first thing that flashes into your mind. But I think the second thing that right behind that is what we have accepted by faith and we've seen Jesus with the eyes of faith is now going to be sight. We're going to see our Lord Jesus Christ with our own eyes. And uh, it'll be in the glorified body, and we're going to see the one who loved us enough to go to the cross for us. Uh, I, I just can't, 
you know, the shouting, the, you know, I, I'm not much of a shouter and hooter and holler in church. Uh, I think part of me is afraid that people will think I'm trying to draw attention to myself, and that's the last thing I want to do. And so I'm hesitant to do that, and that's just me. Uh, but I got a feeling that very first second when you said, what in the world's happening? And then all of a sudden it dawns on you that all the problems are over, all the crises are over, and then the realization I'm about to see Jesus, oh, I think there'll be some hooting and hollering there. You know, well, there'll be some yelling, some screaming, some, you know, uh, it's going to just be a glorious time. For us, but for the folks that stay behind, go with me if you would to um, Second Ephesians. Ephesians. I keep doing that. Thessalonians. I did it in Sunday school too. I'm always saying turn to First Ephesians. Uh, so I, I'm going to eventually get this out of my system. Probably by the time we quit teaching its lessons. But in Second Thessalonians chapter two. And we'll look at Paul writing about um, the Antichrist. And we see in verse uh, 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, this is the Antichrist that comes on the scene. Now, one of the things to realize is the tribulation period is basically broke up into two periods. There is the first part of the tribulation where the, the, the Christians have left. The restraining power of God, the Holy Spirit, has been taken out. And people are going to just fulfill their appetites for all the sins, anything they want to do. But there's still going to be laws and there's still going to be governments. And the Antichrist is going to be busy establishing himself and establishing his government. And the thing is, for those who buy into him and buy into the fact that he's got a plan that evidently Israel even buys into that it'll guarantee their security enough so that they surrender their weapons. Now think of Israel today and how unlikely it is that they're going to want to surrender their weapons and yet this man is going to come on the scene. He's going to be charismatic enough and he's going to have a plan. And I don't know if it's going to bring on economic prosperity. I don't know what it is, but I think the people who buy into it are actually going to probably prosper. They're going to think good things of this situation. And for the first three and a half years, he's establishing himself. And there's lots of sin. There's terrible things going on because the Holy Spirit's been, the restraints of the Holy Spirit's been taken out of the situation. And the people who are wicked today are really getting with it. But the thing is, there's still going to be law. There's still going to be government. There's still going to be the Antichrist suppressing people from anarchy because he wants to rule but the thing is he encourages the jews to go back to temple worship and either at their dedication of their temple or at some ceremony that's where verse four happens 
And verse 4 says, Who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In other words, he's going to walk up to those Jews, and during this period of time, there's been 144,000 Jewish young men who got saved, who God sends out to preach the word, and they've been sending out the word, uh, and people have uh, been receiving it, and the Jews have been kind of weighing it in the balance. Uh, you know, here's the Antichrist, and here's these 144,000 Jews who are taking the Old Testament and showing how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they just been kind of weighing it in the balance. And then this Antichrist walks into their temple that they have rebuilt, that he encourages them to rebuild, and sits down in the temple and said, you know, the God you've been looking for, here I am. But the thing is, the Jews reject him. In the book of Acts, um, and I'll, no, book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 26, it basically tells us, and so all Israel shall be saved. Almost in a single day, the entire nation of Israel gets saved. They realize the contrast between what the, the, the witnesses have been saying, the 144,000 preachers have been saying, and now the act of the Antichrist. God the Holy Spirit pours out a blessing. Anyway, they get saved, and they reject the Antichrist. Well, then what comes on the scene is this, that the Antichrist persecutes the Jews. Now, where does that leave the rest of the world? They're following this leader. They have a choice to make. He's, he's attacking God's people, God's chosen people. And the world has a decision to make, and they make a poor decision. They decide to support the Antichrist, at least as a nation, as, a, as nations they do. And that brings upon the great tribulation. That's where God starts pouring out all of his wrath. That's where all the different plagues, all the different vials, all the different things that are talked about in the book of Revelation are poured out in this second half. And if you'll go with me to um, Isaiah chapter 13, and again, this was something we saw in our Sunday school classes um, not long ago, but in Isaiah chapter 13, and in verse 9, Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven shall, and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall cause her shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Now, I asked my Sunday school class when I was teaching this part, and I asked them a question. When God does a job, do you think he does a proper job of it? And when he starts bringing his wrath to bear, he's going to bring a proper job of it. He's going to do a good job of it. 
The thing is, as Brother David has said before, God doesn't threaten anybody. God promises. God makes promises, and he's promising to do this. And so these folks that are left behind or find themselves in this situation. Jesus basically, uh, he said in uh, Matthew 24 and verses 21 and 22 that if God didn't shorten those days, no flesh would survive uh, during this time of great tribulation. But you know something that's really neat, and this is what I wanted to point out more than anything, is our God never changes. He's the same God during the time of tribulation that he was in the time of Noah. Would you agree with me? They refused and uh, the world was wiped out except for Noah and his family. But God showed mercy to Noah and his family. Trouble is, since God never changes, guess what? He was at the same time that was what was happening to the world during Noah and the same thing that's going to be happening during the tribulation period is the same God who had uh, the Apostle Paul write or Apostle John write John 3.16. I mean, God doesn't change. You know, what does John 3.16 tell us? Come on, a bunch of you could quote it. That's right. And guess what? He's that same God even during the tribulation period. Go with me, if you would, to... um, the book of Revelations in chapter 7. Revelations chapter 7, starting in verse 9. John the Revelator writing here, he says, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels did and all the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts are to uh, fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And, and I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You know, the thing is, early in in the 1900s, there was like about 2 billion people on the face of the earth. Now we're at 7 or 8. The thing is, there may actually be more souls saved during the tribulation than there has ever been saved in history. I mean, all time put together up to this time, in the 6,000 years since the beginning of creation, there may be more souls saved during the tribulation 
that has been saved in the last 6,000 years. So let me ask you this. Is God doing them a favor by allowing the tribulation maybe to happen? Let me, let me, let me, let me support this a little bit. Um, Billy Graham, our pastor, has made the comment that he said he thought that 80 to 90% of all churches that the pews are full with lost people. Think about that just a little bit. People who are basically in a church either that doesn't teach the truth or they're playing games with God. They're, they're not taking it seriously. On the battlefields and stuff like that, do you think there's a lot of people who get saved that never would have got saved any other time in their life? You see somebody that you care about or some situation, it doesn't have to be someone you really know very well, but you see something really bad happen over there and there's shells that's falling. You think there's been some people to remember some of their Sunday school lessons from way back when and did some praying? What's your thoughts? You know, I, I think there's, there's probably been a lot of souls that if they had never gone into war, never would have got saved. We may never know until we got to heaven because they may not have got off the battlefield. But the thing is, what usually makes people get serious about God? Is it good times or bad times? And is there going to be a worse time than the tribulation? There may, it may be the first time that a lot of people take the time to get serious about their, their souls. Because really in our country, I mean, even people who have financial problems in our country are still a lot better than most of the world. Trouble is, in a lot of the rest of the world, the gospel isn't clearly preached. There, there's the Muslim faith, there's the Hindu faith, there's just lots of other things going on. Plus, if you live in a part of the world where you've got to work 15 hours a day just to figure out how to put food on the table, a lot of times you just don't take a lot of time for contemplation of things. You're whooped at the end of the day. And the thing is, your kids don't get educated because you need them to go to work by the time they're 10 or 12 years old. You know, there's just a lot of parts of our world that we just don't know how blinded they are and how little of the gospel message they still get. And yet, during this time, there is going to be a focus on the fact that bad things are happening and something's got to change. And it may be the first time that a lot of people seriously stop and get serious about God. But the thing is, the same God that had Rome, uh, John 3.16 wrote is the same God because he don't change. The Bible tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's willing to save any soul that will turn to Christ. And so there, we may see what's going to be a glorious day for us and we get raptured out and it ushers in a terrible time on the face of the earth and yet it may be the only reason those souls don't go to hell. And our population boom that we've had, there's so many folks on the face of the earth, the percentage of souls that may get saved just may be horrendous. I mean, it is, you know, humongous is probably a better word. Yeah, the, you know, just, uh, just a, a great thing. But the thing is, there's something to balance that with. Um, go with me, if you would, to Second um, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. I'm real proud of myself. I didn't say Ephesians. During this time of the tribulation, let's, let's read what Paul writes here 
in verse 9, it says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. So talking about the Antichrist and all of his charismatic evil workings, it goes on to say, In them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. For this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned. Is there any doubt why God is sending them a strong delusion? He wants to damn them. He's going to send them to hell. He's already made up his mind about it. That's pretty serious, isn't it? And again, God doesn't threaten nobody. He's promising. He says, I'm going to send you to hell if you fall into this camp. And what that camp is, is people who are alive today, who hear the gospel, and don't just hear it and their mind was in la-la land, they were halfway thinking about what they were going to do later in the day, and they really weren't listening. I don't think that you people fall into that camp. But if you're sitting in a service and the gospel is preached, that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins as a substitute for you, and that you can get saved by just putting your confidence and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God the Holy Spirit makes that real to you, in other words, in your heart, you know what you've heard is the truth, but you decide, but I'm going to do it another day. You, you make some excuse Whatever that excuse is, you decide, I'm going to do it some other time. I'm not going to take care of business. God God made it clear to you, you know you heard the truth. And you know you ought to get saved. But you decide not to do it. He said that they might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, they chose not to embrace the truth. They know it's the truth. But they chose not to embrace it. They chose not to believe it. They didn't do what God commands us to do. And that is, God commands that every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. You'll either do it in this life humbly and accept him as Savior, or you'll do it right before they cast you into the lake of fire. But every single knee of every single person that's ever been born or ever will be born will bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. And the choice is you can do it now and he'd be your your elder brother, your savior. You can be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Or you can say no. But the thing is, I say that to say this. We don't want to say, okay, a lot of folks are going to get saved during the tribulation, and so I'm off the hook to witness. We don't want to go down that path. First of all, they might not make it to the to the tribulation. They could be having a car wreck tomorrow. We we don't know what tomorrow holds. God in his long suffering may wait sixty or seventy more years. You know, I, I don't know what's gonna we don't know what's gonna happen. We need to be busy seeing people come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And then for those that have already heard the gospel, truly understood the gospel, but did not embrace the gospel. We desperately don't want those folks to go into the tribulation period because their fate is already settled.
God, like I said, God doesn't threaten, God promises. And so if a soul knows they need to get saved, they know how to get saved, and they just choose not to accept it, God says that he's going to send the Satan working through the Antichrist is going to come up with a lie. He's got to explain where all the Christians went. He's got to explain that somehow. And he's going to come up with whatever his deal is. And the thing is, God's going to send the people who heard the truth but did not embrace it. He's going to send them a strong delusion that they believe a lie that they might be damned. It has to be this group of people because he tells us over the book of Revelation that multitudes of people are going to get saved. So it can't be just a blanket net that everybody that gets into the tribulation goes to hell. That's not the case. So who is it? It's those that it says, who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They had a choice to make. It was real to them. They knew they'd heard the truth, and they said no. And if they slip off into the tribulation, it's settled. God's going to keep his promise to them. So the thing is for us is to realize that we've got a job to do because we don't know who's sitting next to us somewhere. If they've heard the gospel somewhere else but didn't accept it, but a seed was planted, we need to be busy watering. Or we're the ones that's planting the seed and someone else will water. But we've got a mission to accomplish, and that's to see as many souls get saved as possible before this happens. But go with me, if you would, in the book of Revelation to chapter 20. Another thing is, why in the world would we want to allow that soul to get saved during the tribulation period and go through everything they went through? Plus, why would we not want to have another crown to throw at the Lord Jesus' feet as far as serving him in this lifetime and getting to see a soul get saved? And we had a part in it. But as I said that the tribulation period, which is probably the worst thing that's ever going to happen on the face of this earth for them, is starts out as the second greatest day in our life. It's also going to end on a great day. And in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. But then go with me over, if you would, uh, to verse 10, same chapter. And after he gets loosed for a short time, um, after that thousand years, in verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. I tell you what, that day when they bind him with that chain, I've said it before, I really hope they give us a chance to get a few kicks in. You know, because he's messed with me, and he's messed with a lot of people that I love, and he's still messing with me, and he's still messing with a lot of people that I love. And it, it would be a great day after they bind him up with that chain. I do want him bound up with the chain. (laughs) 
<laughs> I really, you know, <laughs> I do want to see that chain all wrapped around him. But then give us a stick and give us some time. And uh, let us all get a few good licks in uh, because he's certainly been doing it to us. But it's going it's to start on the second greatest day of our life. And it's going to end on a great day when he's bound. And our Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. And we get to rule and reign with him. The key is, are you saved today? If you're not, I know after the service is over, I'd love to talk with you and share with you how you can know for sure that you're saved today. If you've got family that you know needs to get saved, we need to be busy we need to be prayerful. We need to be busy. We need to not to be too worried about offending folks because we don't want to see them slip off into this time. And like I said, we read in our Sunday school lesson where it talks about in the Thessalonians, almost did it again, uh, that it said when they've got peace and safety, when they feel like they're in peace and safety. Well, that's not talking about now. Because we don't feel like we're in peace. It's talking about right before that great tribulation. In other words, when the Antichrist has seized power for three and a half years, and he's putting in his government, he's working his plan, and the people at that time think they've really got it made. They can fulfill their sinful desires, and nobody's ridiculing them. Nobody's you know making them feel guilty for being a sinner, and uh, you know there's no preachers preaching at me type stuff, and and, and they think they got peace and safety, but then that Antichrist walks into that stage and de- declares that he's God, and the Jews reject him. The Jews get saved. He starts persecuting them, and the great tribulation starts happening then. We don't have to have peace and security now. It could be total turmoil, and the Lord come back, and we're out of here. It could happen today. So we got a glorious hope if we are saved. One day we'll see Jesus with our own eyes. Let's take as many souls with us as we possibly can. And the only way we can do that is to introduce them to our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for your good attention. Again, if anyone needs to talk with me, I would love to talk with you. Um, Brother David Scott,